Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Triple R. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. And my name's Dr Beach. How are you, Dr Beach? I'm very well. And Good. You? I'm very well too. On this sort of somewhat humid It Sunday is a bit morning. humid, yeah. Yeah. A little bit sticky. And you know, before we move on, we're going to thank Tim for another wonderful vital bits. White, vital bits. Vital bits. <laughs> thank you, let's Tim. Get my, let's get my pronunciation correct. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much to Tim, to uh, Andrew for soulful bits and to Steph for things to do today. Yeah, great. Uh, six hours of morning radio across the weekend. Across the weekend, yes. I was going to say. Yeah, Tim didn't get here at 3am. No. no. Um, but yes, catch final bits next weekend as well. We have a huge show, as I've mentioned on our Facebook page, a uh, little promotional piece that we put out at four o'clock on Saturday afternoons. Something for everyone this week, Dr. Beach. Oh, there is. Yeah. yeah. And we, we always have a huge show. Yeah. Big show. I know. Lots of stuff. It's, yeah, it's feeling a bit repetitive saying it every week, but some shows take on a bit of a theme and some are a little more laid back and some – anyway, this one's got something for everyone. We are going to be speaking with our go-to coastal paleontologist, Ben Francishelli. He's going to be speaking to us about our very own giant seabird dinosaurs known as pelagornithids. I'm hoping I've pronounced that correctly. That's how I I'm seeing it anyway, um, the largest flying bird that's ever existed. So Ben joins us routinely talking about some of our local uh, prehistoric marine creatures and incredible fossil record that exists down Bayside Way. Uh, and so this particular uh, bird, uh, known as a pelagornithid, looks like a kind of feral pelican, if you can picture that, <laughs> <laughs> with like really big, gnashy teeth. <laughs> Slightly, there's a one that's been recreated, and we've used that for our um, our, our Facebook image. And uh, anyway, Ben's going to talk about. I, I, I believe somebody said, um, "Is he going to bring one into the studio or something yeah. like oh, that?" Oh, a listener. It's so lifelike. It actually it does look like potentially one might have been you know recreated. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which I suppose. Unfortunately, not. Or maybe fortunately not. Well, yeah. We don't really want a Jurassic Park situation emerging. No. Um, down Bayside Way. So anyway, Ben's going to talk about these pelagornithids uh, died out millions of years ago, but uh, yeah, fossil, very rich fossil record locally. Uh, we've got a bunch of news to bring to you and then we're going to hop the ditch to Auckland to speak with Dr Nigel Bradley. He is the CEO of Envirostrat about this very exciting development in seaweed aquaculture. Seaweeds. Love it. It's the new Algae. black. A clo- the new black. <laughs> a clonia radiata, one of my favourite kelps. I thought you'd be happy about that. Yeah. Yeah. So if you listen to this program, you'll know we've been banging on about seaweed and um, for a very long time and there's there's definitely uh, calls uh, in, in Australia to develop a seaweed uh, aquaculture program for so many positive reasons. Yep. Hasn't quite got off the ground here, but, you know, Kiwi's leading the way mm-hmm. over in Aotearoa. So, and uh, the really nice thing is that they're marrying it with the, with the mussel farmers over there. Mm. 
next you, to the Coromandel. You've done your homework, Dr. Peach. I've done a little bit of pre-reading. I, I, I prepare, <laughs> prepare hugely for this program, you know that. Yes, I do, I do. So we're going to be speaking with uh, Dr. Nigel Bradley about this really exciting startup program. They're one year into a three-year pilot, but it's looking extremely promising. Um, yeah. And then, Dr. Beach, over to you. And then at the end, um, yeah, I'm going to talk about water bears um, or moss piglets, as they are sometimes known. Tardigrades is their official moniker. Um, we've talked about them from time to time on the show. Everybody loves a water bear. Very tiny creatures, around one millimetre in size, live all over the earth from, you know, top of Everest down to the deep seas. And some, some recent work which has been done on them. They have this amazing capacity to to withstand extremes and to dry out and to and to live for in this state of torpor for a very long time. And anyway, somebody in Germany has done some, um, some pretty interesting experiments on those. And we're also going to look at how blind fish get around in the dark mm. in caves in China, how they do that. Bit of a hint, it's a little bit like us getting up in the middle of the night and trying to find our way around the house, get to the bathroom. I did exactly that at 3 o'clock this morning. How do you do it? With no lights? I'll let you think about it and then we'll, um, we'll talk about that yeah. at the end. Okay, interesting. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. To the marine environment, and we did have um, someone contact us about this via our Facebook Messenger, just sort of alerting to the fact that it, it's fairly obvious you go down to the go down to any kind of um, beach near a stormwater outlet at the moment or a river mouth mm. and the water's brown and that's just a fact of, of where things are at. Yeah, that's right. And we've also um, had, a, had a message from, um, from Dean Snow um, and he had a – I assume it's a drone shot off Point Addis of this yes. uh, very fascinating imagery um, of – and thanks, Dean, for um, – for sending this um, across to us. Well, it was actually Rob Lorenzen who sent it. Oh, Rob Lorenzen, yeah, right. Yeah, okay. so Rob who's been on the program. Do you remember the book uh, Dog Called Spike, which yes, he wrote? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, so anyway, I think Dean is a friend of his. Right, okay. Um, imagery of this um, this band of kind of red stuff that seems to be about a kilometre off point at us um, and run that by an expert friend of mine, David Hill, who um, knows all things about phytoplankton um, and apparently it is Noctiluca scintillans, ah. uh, which is a dinoflagellate. So dinoflagellates do bloom to massive proportions from time to time and Noctiluca is the one which causes phosphorescence. Uh, so there might be people down on the west coast who are seeing some phosphorescence, some of these organisms coming into the seashore um, around this time. And very often get mistaken for an oil spill because it does look so unusual. It doesn't actually look like an oil spill, but it's very unusual to get such a long stretch of such you know bright, differently coloured water. Yeah, that's right. And it's, it's very much restricted to a, to a band. So that's what we call a windrow. Mm. Out there, it's not a thermocline or a halocline or anything like oh, that. It's a, it's a windrow, so it's on the surface. Yeah, okay. All sorts of interesting physics behind that, and um, I'll let people look that up without going into it. Yeah, now. cool. Yeah. Um, while we're talking about people who've reached out to us, Harm Ellen's reached out as well. Harm, who is a longtime friend of Marinara and subscriber to Triple R, uh, letting, alerting us to the fact that the world's heaviest bony fish has uh, weighed in at a whopping. 2,744 kilograms. That's a big fish. That's a big fish. What sort of fish is it? It's a sunfish, so I'm a bit sad about this one because I do love sunfish. Oh, speaking of sunfish, uh, there's a bunch of them apparently out in Bass Strait, according to Dave Donnelly. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, it's 15 or something have been spotted in the last couple of weeks. But anyway, this one, um, it was found dead off the coast of the uh, Faroe Island in the Azores, broken the record for the world's heaviest bony fish, although there are boneless fish that weigh more. Um, and, uh, yeah, Harm sent the, this one to us saying, uh, yeah, maybe trivia for a future marinara quiz. 2,744 kilos. That's a big fish. That's a very big fish. Yeah. Uh, and also, um, Harm sent us this one a um, couple of weeks ago uh, about an article that appeared in The Guardian about deep sea mounts. That's right. And some, I'm looking at some very beautiful images now um, taken from the what, deep sea mounts in, in the middle of the Pacific um, of these so-called ET sponges, these wonderful sponges which have this face, um, a face. <laughs> it looks like they've got a so sponges. We are... Probably all of us are aware of sponges are quite simple animals, but these are ones which are in the deep sea, which are on a stalk, and at the top they have really looks like a head with these two really big orifices in it, which look like eyes, so ET, um, ah, and just right. fascinating-looking sponges, and they all face the same way towards the current so that they can filter out the stuff which is in the water, and that's how sponges get by in life, by filtering out the water and eating what's in there. Um, but these look, um, yeah, very much like ET, so that was um, kind of cute, so thanks. Sending cool. that across. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Beach. Triple R. Very excited to welcome back to Radio Marinara, Ben Francis Shelley. Good morning, Ben. Morning, Brian. Morning, Dr. Beach. How are you doing? Pretty good. How are you going, Ben? I'm great. I, that last song, I'm so pumped for summer when it yeah. comes. I, it is the best time of the year, isn't it? <laughs> well, I like all seasons. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm kind of a winter guy, you know. Yeah. Get the fire going, put on a nice jumper. I like the shoulder seasons. I like spring and autumn. I like the lot. Yeah, I like the lot. Yeah. Yeah. Summer's the best because you get to go under the water well, and it's yeah. not like freezing cold and you're not dying inside every single time you take a breath. It's, you know, really nice when you can get in the water like that. For water-based activities, <laughs> totally agree with you. Now, first question, did I pronounce it correctly? Pelagornithids, are we right there? Oh, I did hear you in the previous segment. I, no. I don't want to say that you, you no, no, butchered it, but it's close. It's called uh, Pelagonithids. So you're close with that last one, but I did hear you in the previous segment, Bron. Okay. So. I'm happy to be corrected anytime. Pelagonithids. <laughs> yeah, it is, a, it is an absolute mouthful uh, to give you, to be completely honest with you. So, yeah, hard to pronounce if you've never pronounced it before. Now, this one, that we've got a great photo that we've put on our Facebook page, which has generated all kinds of interest, people thinking that maybe have we got a, a live Pelagonithid. I'm going to have to retrain my brain now. Not a live, uh, not a live one though. No, not a live one. So that image there is actually of a person holding a lammergeier, a bone-eating vulture of some sort, um, and they're amazing birds in their own right. And then what I've done is just uh, put a, a paleo artist's uh, figure, a rendition of a of a face of Pelagornis on that image. So it look, it just blends in so incredibly well. But look. For all the listeners out there, the pelagonithids were giant birds, wingspans more than six metres across. Think of something, the height of a giraffe, one of the largest flying birds that ever existed. 40 kilograms in weight, though, which is really shocking. Um, but they all died out at least a couple of million years ago. And, and, and the pella bit, is that what we were saying before, that it looks a little bit like a pelican. And is that oh, why it, I'm it's... so glad you brought this up because, yes, they were always thought to be very closely related either to albatrosses or pelicans. But no, hmm. they're absolutely in no way related to them at all. A number of cladistic analyses have been done. They're more closely related to the anseriforms, which include ducks and geese. Okay. But oh. giraffe size. 
But giraffe size wingspan, yeah, absolutely so, massive. So giraffe size wingspan, but only forty kilos. Is that? Do they have? Is it the hollow bone thing? Is that why? Really hollow bones, and that's one of the identifying characteristics of the fossil material we can find in Bayside. Is that when we do find their wings, the thickness of the bones is only a couple of millimeters thick, and that's wow. it. My goodness. And ba- so these are found Bayside. How, how many fossils have you found? Uh, well, this is another great – so uh, at the beginning of 2010, there'd only been a couple of fossils found, and the only locality in which they came from was Bayside. So the fossil area there dates roughly five to six million years of age, and it's a really fantastic fossil deposit, but I knew that there was more that was out there. I, I could not believe that there was only just that small amount of fossil material. So I worked with an incredible group of citizen scientists – for a number of years and still do. And since that time, um, 30, 40 different bones that we've been able to find of this bird. Wow. And, and when you said only in Bayside, do you literally mean only in Bayside? So it's not anywhere else in the world? You've only found fossils? It is found organism. in other areas of the world, but the only place on the continent that we can find it is in Bayside. And right. that's it. The only so place in, fact, in Australia. Australia was the very last continent to actually tick off the Pelagonithid box. They'd been found globally everywhere else. And in 2010, when we finally found one of the most diagnostic bits of bone that we'd found up until that time, a lower leg bone, we're able to say, yes, this thing did exist in Australia. That's extraordinary. Sure is. So can you remind us just a little bit? So when did birds first – so this is going back into the deep past. My brain's a bit fuzzy this morning, but a yep. bit too many Chardonnays last night, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so was it, did you say between 5 and 10 million years ago, this fossil bed? Yeah, so roughly five to six million years ago for Bayside. But um, a bird, like, so the, the Pelagonithids first appear in the fossil record right after the demise of the dinosaurs, some 62 million years ago. And when they first appear, they're only about the size of a seagull. Right. But then they start to get to incredible sizes with those huge, massive wingspans and start to cover everywhere all over the world. And what do you reckon they would have been chomping? What would, what have they been eating back then? Five it has to been six a very contentious debate in paleontology, as you can imagine. Everything's a contentious debate yeah, in yeah. paleontology. Though that's paleontologists in a nutshell, um, but one theory is that that because they have these bizarre teeth embedded mm. in the bill, and mm. it looks like actual teeth, but it's not real dentition. They're called pseudo teeth, and it's actually being thought that, <clears throat> pardon me, the stress of holding a fish in its mouth whilst it was wriggling around may have knocked out or broken off some of those teeth. It's been suggested that it may primarily be in a squid feeder because once you take a squid out of the water, it's very limp. And doesn't struggle anywhere near as much as a fish. So it may have been just like the wandering albatross on the air for years at a time, just scooping up squid in its bill and swallowing them whole. Wow. And a wandering albatross, just to remind us, like you said, this has got a six metre wingspan that Pelagonithid albatrosses have around two, isn't it? Yeah, I think the absolute biggest individual was maybe maximum of four, but like that was the biggest individual wandering albatross that you know, has ever been found. So wow. it really gives you Four a good minutes. perspective of just how much bigger. Like Pelagornis could stand up to your shoulders. That's how big it was. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, it is. And also, what, what did the bay look like back then, five to six million uh, years ago? Very well, different we didn't really to what have it much is of now. The bay. the bay only formed at about six to 10,000 years ago. So it's a very recent phenomenon. And uh, the amazing thing is that the Bunwarang people themselves talk about a time of chaos when there was this mass flooding period, and it seems to coincide with a very well-known flooding period that occurs worldwide at the last glacial estimate as well. So we know that they were here when that last flooding of Port Phillip Bay occurred. Um, five to six million years ago, Melbourne would have been 20, 40 metres underwater and would have actually been a lot warmer on land as well by about three degrees. 
And what is it? Can you remind us, what is it about Bayside that we have such a, a rich fossil record? Several times on this program we've interviewed, well, we've had you on there lots, but, but also other people talking about the, the, you know, the, the amazing fossil record we have, particularly in places like Mornington and yeah, the Mornington fossil beds are really interesting as well. Well, I like to call it the Goldilocks effect. It's just right in terms of all the special ingredients there. So you've got uh, the active erosion that's happening on the cliffs and you just have this incredible moment in time where the fossil deposits are just exposed to the elements for one very brief geological time period. And it's, yeah, it's a real freak that we even get these uh, exposed areas out and that we have this huge glut in accumulation fossils in Bayside. So at the time that these fossils were deposited, all these animals died and their bones ended up kind of embedded in the rock, you were saying that Melbourne was underwater. How would that have happened when you're talking about pure luck? What sort of processes would have led to that? Um, Well, I mean... It, it's when, when we think of fossils, most people think, oh, you're going to find an entire skeleton of an animal or something like that. But the reality is you only find like maybe one tiny little rib of an entire organism that lived many millions of years ago. The fossil record is incredibly biased. 99.99% of everything that has ever lived will not be recovered from the fossil record. We will not find it at all. It's basically died. You've got to think of scavenging at the time and Bayside in particular. There were huge predators around that would have been feasting on a number of carcasses before they even hit the bottom of the seafloor. So all of it is just pure dumb luck that we have any fossils at all that weren't completely scavenged and feasted upon by all these predators. Amazing. Ben, you're going to be giving a talk about the uh, pelagonithids. I've got it right in my head now. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I am. Let's I, get, I am let's going to give be giving a, a talk and I am super excited to be doing it. Let's give this a big plug. <laughs> uh, the 20th anniversary of Ricketts Point Marine Sanctuary with Marine Care Ricketts Point, they are holding a massive event on the 12th of November at the Beaumaris Life Saving Club. Um, there's going to be touch tanks and marine critters, beach patrols, a rock pool ramble, but I'm going to be there. And Ooh. I'm going to be talking about these magnificent birds <laughs> that once soared above the immensity of the Southern Ocean. So I'm going to be talk- giving a talk about these uh, incredible birds and p- specifics, talking about their anatomy, what we found in Bayside, because what we found in Bayside will blow your mind. Stuff we never thought was possible to find on this continent. Stuff that we could potentially name a completely new species of pelagonithid with. And then what we're going to be doing afterwards is a fossil roadshow. So I'm going to be bringing a number of unique fossils that I found. You can come down, have a look at them, potentially even touch them as well, from whales to prehistoric sharks to giant wombat-like creatures. And if you have any fossils... Just like Antiques Roadshow, the greatest show that's ever existed in the history of the world, you can bring in your fossils and I can identify them for you as well and determine whether or not they represent anything of inherent scientific interest. So um, if you didn't catch all that at the beginning, if you go to my social media page, a fool's experiment, A underscore fool's underscore experiment on Instagram, all the details are there. Just check the most recent post in my bio and you'll be able to go. It's a free event. You just have to turn up. So, Bo Morris Yacht Club, November the 5th, did you say? Bo Morris Life Saving Club on 12th of November. 12th of okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> on the 12th. Life saving. <laughs> We've actually already put all those details on our Facebook page. That's the best way to find it out is to go there. But, yeah, 12th of November uh, and Bo Morris Life Saving Club because there's three different clubs in Bo Morris. It's so confusing it every is. single time. I, I've gone to the wrong one by accident before <laughs> so for a talk. Funny. It's just silly. <laughs> there's the Motor Yacht Squadron, there's the Life Saving Club, and then there's a Yacht Club, I think. But, anyway, this one is the Life Saving Club uh, at Ricketts Point. Uh, yeah, fantastic. Make sure you get yourself down there. We'll continue to promote this over the next couple of weeks. 
Thank you, Ben. Thank you so much, guys. Always Have a great day. I'm going to go get brunch right now. It's going to be fun. Why don't you go do that? <laughs> we'll catch you soon. Okay. See Bye. You, ben. Bye. Ben, ben Francis Shelley there. Amazing stuff, Dr. Beach. Oh, it certainly was. So, Always yeah. learn so much. Yeah. yeah. And to think of that um, enormous bird, Pelagornis, of the Pelagonithids. Yeah, Pelagonithids. Yeah, I'm never going to get that one. <laughs> this is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Remember. Do what we tell you, Triple R. You will feel very, very nice. Now, New Zealand was one of the first countries in the world to develop marine protection legislation when it introduced the Marine Reserves Act in 1971. So it's never a surprise to us here at Radio Marinara when we come across stories of our cousins in Aotearoa leading the way in anything to do with looking after the ocean. So this week I came across a story in a Kiwi Mates news feed. Big shout out to you there, Coral. Uh, I was not surprised and hugely excited to see reports from the North Island's Coromandel Peninsula of a successful pilot for what will likely not only regenerate local algal algal ecosystems, but also establish a new native seaweed aquaculture industry for New Zealand. To find out more about it all, let's cross now to Auckland, I believe it's Auckland, to speak with one of the scientists heading up the project, Dr Nigel Bradley. Good morning, Nigel. Welcome to Radio Marinara and to Triple R. Good morning. Great for having you here. Uh, We're just going to sort out your audio a little bit and uh, hopefully get that that worked out. this is really exciting. We've been talking about seaweed as a sustainable industry for a long time on this program and uh, for its many applications and uses. But uh, also, unlike so many other industries, it has such minimal environmental impact. Can you tell us a bit about what this project's all about? Sure. So, oh, hello. Let's can you hear me now? Oh, we can. I think that's sounding a little bit better. There you go. Yeah, that's good. All right. Um, so we'll skip going through the introduction again. Um, where we were at, we're just about to talk about this uh, really exciting new development in seaweed aquaculture industry in New Zealand. Let's just launch straight into it. What's this project all about? Okay, thank you for having me first. So about three years ago, uh, we were looking around the world, with much much like what you were saying in your introduction, Bron, everyone's talking about seaweed. It seems like an incredibly exciting opportunity for aquaculture and for, for lots of different reasons. But I, um, I was particularly interested in an organisation in the States called Greenwave. And Greenwave was set up originally in the northeast of the US in these coastal fishing communities where the fish stocks have just dried up. And as a result, you've got these multi-generational communities whose entire economy has disappeared. So it was very much a social um, impact project when it first kicked off. So Greenwave is what they call regenerative ocean farming. A guy called Brent Smith founded it. The whole idea being um, you've got these communities that understand the water, that understand um, how to use vessels, etc., and transitioning them from fishing into, into aquaculture. So Gr- Greenwave always it's spread right across the states. I've got thousands of, of farmers now on board. It always involves farming seaweed as well as other species such as clams, oysters, uh, etc. So when we started thinking about that, and I, I went over to the States and, and got permission from Greenwave to look at how we could adapt their business model to New Zealand's context. And when we started digging into it, what we found is that we already knew that we are 
really good at farming oysters and, and mussels. We don't need to learn that. We'd never done anything with seaweed in, in this country, much like um, in, the, in the States. So you've got a fledgling industry here, but there is no one farming it. So what, what that told us right from, from the outset a couple of years ago was that if we want to develop something that looks and feels a little bit like Greenwave in this country, the first thing we have to do is actually work out how to create a supply chain for seaweed. And so what that meant is hatcheries and farming. Those are the two areas that we hadn't done anything with. We have some companies that have been around for a while that are taking seaweed off the beach or seaweed that uh, attaches itself to mussel farms as, as treated as bycatch, but no one was farming it, deliberately farming it. And so that, that led us down this path where we, what we need to understand is not just can you farm it, because it's been farmed in, um, in Asia. There's a farm in Japan that's a 1,000 years old, so there's no question at all that it's doable. We already know that we are good marine farmers, but what we haven't done is really is that seaweed farming part of it. No, it's so we want to understand how to be productive and how to ensure that the farmer can make money as well as providing uh, that social impact and the environmental impact is a big part of it. Sorry, Dr. Beach. Uh, no, no worries. Um, you said that, that they've been farming seaweed in Asia for like a thousand years, but have they been farming Aclonia? So this this kelp that um, you know some people may know it as spiny kelp or leather kelp is another name for it, which we have here in Australia as well in southern Australia, and of course across the ditch, um, it grows there naturally. But is is this one of the first times that people have been growing Aclonia successfully? Yeah. Uh, yes. So the in Korea. There is some Aclonia farming, but it's not the same species. It's not Aclonia radiata, which is what we have here and, and in Australia. So, And the reason that we've chosen that particular species for what we're doing at the moment is more driven by the market. So we've partnered with a company called Agrisea that has been collecting Aclonia off the beaches after storms for 25 years. And so we know, therefore, that there is a market demand for Aclonia and that enables us, as we're looking to test the methods for farming it, that we can understand that we're actually looking to create an end-to-end supply chain rather than just trying to farm something that we um, hope that we can sell in the future. And that market, that, that what, what, what is the use for this? What, what, what is, um, what's the Eclonia use for this? See, we know in some, I could have a guess, but <laughs> it would be great to hear it from you. Yeah, pr- predominantly agricultural uses. So, um, Agrisi, who's who we're partnering with on this pilot, have been using it for animal feed supplements, for um, uh, what else do they use it for? Bee nutrition, for example. They've just recently been developing a really high-end um, product from what was historically waste, which is a hydrogel, so moving right up the value chain there. Um, and and they've, they've experimented with some food and uh, and beverages, but most of the focus, as you guess from, from the name Agrisi, has been on the agricultural sector, and they've been um, doing it for, for 25 years. So what we're, we're really doing is helping with that supply chain to give them more product, and once we've been through a pilot, then we will really know how uh, how effective this can be. Well, there was some research published not that long ago that was looking at the positive benefits of kelp and feeding it to, in terms of methane production and a reduction in methane, wasn't there, Dr. Beach? There was, and I was about to, yeah. So, so that was with a, a red seaweed with asparagopsis, yep. I believe. So yep. are, are there the same benefits in reducing the, the amount of methane which is coming out of the, you know, the, the cattle burps? Uh, not not as significant as asparagopsis, and, and we did look at whether that was a species that we wanted to be piloting the farming of. But our our thinking is we 
Agrisi has a product that has a huge impact on reducing the urinary nitrogen coming out of a cow. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the work hasn't been done on the methane reduction, but we figure there are already a lot of folk in New Zealand, Australia, and other parts of the world looking at, at growing asparagopsis and, uh, and the methane reduction that uh, we, we didn't need to focus on that. And, and the other thing from, from our point of view, just in a, from a risk reduction point of view, is the only use of asparagopsis is going to be methane reduction, whereas this, whereas with a clonia and some of the other species that we're thinking about, there are there are multiple uses. And I think, especially in a in a really emergent industry, we figured that it's more uh, commercially um, sound to to have stuff uh, to be growing seaweed that we can use for multiple purposes. So the program that we're looking at, uh, this is your one year into a three-year pilot. And as you yep. mentioned, it's about creating that supply chain, but everything that is involved in that as well. So there's hatchery production, uh, on-water farming, seaweed processing, and training programs for seaweed farmers. I was wondering, can we just break that down a little bit and talk through those different components of the program? Yep. Let's start with the hatchery production. What's What's been involved with that, particularly over the last 12 months? Yep. So we have, uh, we've partnered with the University of Waikato, in um, over in, in Tauranga in the Bay of Plenty, um, and they they have a team of experts who originally were based up at James Cook University in Queensland. They they are the the seaweed experts that we're using, and what we've done is we've built two small hatcheries. So one is a twenty foot shipping container that's been refitted, and there's another one in a in a small building over in the Coromandel, and we are. Take, we've, so we've taken uh, some broodstock out of the wild and we have been producing um, product in these these hatcheries for for a few months now we started on the on the, with the on the water farming just transplanting wild um, wild product straight onto lines but that's um, un, unsurprisingly much much less effective than we think the hatchery product will be and so really what we're trying to do with the, with the hatcheries is have them cost effective, so somewhere between dollars and $80,000 to build something of that relatively small scale. But that will be producing 36 kilometres of seed rope by year three in our pilot. So it's, it's you know, that's decent scale. But, but it's important to keep those capital costs as low as we can. And, and the, um, the media piece that you saw recently, Bron, was the first time that the hatchery product hatchery grown seaweed has been outplanted onto a um, a farm it's so that's the 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 really exciting uh, next stage for us. That's the first time it's been done like this in, in this country. It's so cool. There's this image and it looks literally like just some fishing line and, and it's all yeah. kind of on a spool and, and it's ready to go. You can see all these little tiny baby algae sort of all you know settled and ready to go. Dr Beach, sorry, you had a question? Uh, yeah, it is. It's very cool. And there's all sorts of side benefits to this as well, of course, Nigel, isn't it? Like it's sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, it's yep. yeah, really, really wonderful thing. And this is, in a sense, I don't, I don't want to diss salmon farming, but it, it's kind of nice aquaculture in that there's no sort of byproduct which is settling down onto the surface of the of the sea. There's no no, no yep. waste which is coming out of it. It's it's yep. uh, yeah, using the sun to yep. um yeah yeah make beautiful it's pretty, things. It's actually quite easy, isn't it? It's sunlight, uh, water, and nutrients is is all you need to to grow seaweed and there's plenty of all of them in the waters. And, and there's that, lots of really carbon dioxide big, in the atmosphere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The the main thing really what we that we try to do, I mentioned 
uh, being as productive with the seaweed farming as possible. And what, what we mean by that is we're, we've got sites in, in different locations within the, uh, the Hauraki Gulf around the Coromandel Peninsula. So we can understand things like water temperature, current, depth, uh, nutrient loading, all of these, all of these external factors. We want to understand how they influence growth rates. Uh, we also are looking at different ways of growing. So we're, we've start the starting point is mussel farms, and we know obviously how to farm mussels. We're working with existing mussel farmers and some local tribes, and we are looking at whether the clonia grows better vertically or horizontally, and, and at the different depths. Also thinking about um, seasonality so planting we're planting every month over the next 12 months so that we understand relatively whether something planted in spring versus summer versus versus autumn is is going to grow better by the end of all of that what we can do then is really understand the um, the opportunity from a commercial point of view for the farmers of the future you're talking about investment before and around sixty to seventy thousand dollars produces um, thirty six kilometers of algae. Presumably it's not hard to grow. In no. Amazing. No, it's, it, it, it isn't. And and I think the the technology's um, well enough understood. So from that point of view it's it's um, it's not. Mm. It's not. It's not easy. But but you know the people people who know what they're doing. It's, it's not incredibly difficult. What we've focused on for the purposes of the pilot is not so much on the genetic research that you might do if you were looking over the long term to really optimise some of your um, some of your opportunities. We've 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 deliberately kept the costs relatively low, uh, and we're looking to prove some um, some quite basic questions because we really haven't. No one's done this in this country before. No. But, and when you're talking about it in relative terms, that in 2018 I was reading in this article that the global seaweed sector is estimated to be worth nearly $21 billion in 2018. Mm. That's $21 billion and we're talking about $70,000 investment and it's growing. Mm. Um, you mentioned the US before. Where are the major players in the seaweed sector? There's a lot in the northeast, uh, sort of New York State and, and north, so typically cooler waters are are pretty attractive also increasingly over in alaska there is there's really really strong growth there and, and the tribes are leading the way and and so green green wave who we've um we're collaborating with on, on this work have got presence on both the east and west coast and it's something we're really conscious of here and and you guys will be in australia as well as 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 the waters are getting warmer uh, what what species are going to be tolerant of those warmer waters? Because we don't want to start trying to farm something that won't be here in, in a decade. Mm. And a clonia, we think, is is a species that will tolerate that warmer water quite well. That's good to hear. But it, it was that there was a question in the back of my mind, Nigel. Is it, mm. Are you seeing a um, a decrease in the, in the amount of naturally growing or existing a clonia because of um, warming waters over there? Presumably not, nah. from what you said just before. Yeah, not 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 so much a clonia, um, but you are seeing much like you're seeing in Tasmania. Some of the big, the big um, macrocystis, the big bull kelps and yep. the like, are really moving south at a rate of knots. And you're seeing areas that even ten years ago they were fairly prolific in the in the lower half of the North Island, for example. They don't, you just don't get them anymore. And that that was really critical from our point of view in selecting the the species to start the pilot with. And we're not intending that that would be the only species that we would look to to farm as we build this out in in the future, but but something that will be tolerant of warm water. 
is, is essential and where there's a market for it. We'll have to wrap up in just a sec. I had a couple mm-hmm. of quick questions. Um, mm-hmm. One was around the process that led to getting the support and kind of getting this over the line because there have been calls from particularly from the tertiary sector here to have mm-hmm. a similar uh, a, a similar investment in seaweed aquaculture mm-hmm. and it's just never really quite got over the line. What was the magic ingredient here, do you think, Nigel? We've, we've got a, a really, really supportive ministry for primary industries here, and, and they've got a fund called Sustainable Food and Fibre Futures. And that provided us – so the, the total cost of the pilot is about $5 million New Zealand dollars over three years. Uh, and that, that fund has provided $2 million in, in grant funding, and we've matched that with the other $3 million. And that, that is really, really critical, is having, having the – the willingness for government, and, and in some cases it might be philanthropy in parts of the world as well, but getting capital that is willing to take that risk, that understands this could fail, um, but and, and it's okay with that. It's you know it's obviously not ideal, but having that that risk, uh, that risky capital enables others uh, who are looking for returns to to be more confident to come in, and, and that's been super helpful uh, for us. And and that that fund is really, um, really, really supportive of of, a, of the emerging seaweed sector. Um, last question. We've um, yep. uh, This is the end of year one. Wondering yep. what you've got planned for the next two years. So we're just starting that, that hatchery uh, production and outplanting is, is really the start of, of the next two years. So we're planting out on uh, two farms at the moment every month and we'll understand um, at a medium-sized scale next year's plan is to to have that full 36 kilometres of line out. And then we're effectively in a position where we can really understand the commercial opportunity. We're also doing a lot of research into the environmental impacts of seaweed farming. So we've got folk looking at the biodiversity benefits or impacts between, especially between a co-culturing of mussels and seaweed. We're looking at the uh, measuring the carbon or CO2 uptake of, of the aclonia and also the nutrient uptake so we can understand the impact across climate, water, quality and biodiversity. And then we're designing the business model for the future so that we can scale this up in a way that keeps the farmer at the centre and the environment at the centre but is still able to provide a commercial return on investment. And so balancing those three. Brilliant. We'd love to catch up with you again next year once this work develops, particularly having a look at some of those environmental impacts and benefits as well. So um, please stay in touch and let us know when a good time will be and we'd love to have you back on the program. Excellent. Okay. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Great. Thanks, Nigel. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. See ya. Bye. Dr. Nigel Bradley there. Amazing stuff, Dr. Beach. Yeah, really nice to hear the work that's coming out of Aotearoa. Yeah. On seaweeds especially. Kiwi's leading the way again. They are. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. We're going to go straight to your segment, Dr. Beach. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about tardigrades. Yeah, let's do that. Or water bears. Um, Another name for them is moss piglets. They are very cute little guys. And by little, I mean they're about one millimetre in size. Uh, We've (laughs) talked about them. In fact, we've we've, we've got a song, a water bears song, which we've played a lot. Um, We're not going to play it today, but many of our listeners will remember that. Mal Webb. Mal Webb. Tardigrades are famous for not only looking cute, um, and look them up on the internet if you've never heard them. You'll see some wonderful pictures of them. But they have this amazing ability to withstand harsh environments they do that by they can do that by drying themselves out um, by desiccating themselves to a point where they are like 0.1 percent of your well one percent of the amount of water that they have in them and when they do that 
they survive those periods of desiccation by slowing themselves right down. We're all familiar with hibernation, sleeping bears in winter, other things hibernate. This is extreme hibernation. Mm. In fact, you can't even call it hibernation because they wind down their their clocks, their their metabolism to about 0.01% of what it would normally be. So that's what, one ten thousandth of the, of the normal activity. And they can be awoken from that. They can be rehydrated and they're happy as Larry, as it were. It doesn't seem to interfere with their, their overall lifespan. Um, there's a group of people working at the University of Stuttgart who wanted to see if the same thing um, worked not only for when you dry out tardigrades but also if you freeze them. So what oh. they did was that they took um, a bunch of tardigrades, four-week-old little water bears, <laughs> and they froze them. Um, and I love some of the methods that you have in papers um, in Volvic. Um, so bottled water, Volvic bottled water, they froze them down to minus 30 degrees oh uh, for a week. Um, then thawed them again for a week and then refroze them for a week and then thawed them for a week. So they're going through these periods of torpor. Um, but they want to see if that interfered with their overall lifespan. In short, it did. Um, it so did this, or didn't? It didn't. Wow. So this is, um, it leads to a so-called sleeping beauty hypothesis um, where um, they don't age once they're um, frozen in this yep. state of torpor just as when they are dried out in these extreme environments, um, they... Don't age. How how is this possible? Um, Still looking at that. Yeah, they're still looking at that. Yeah, getting some um, grants together. I would imagine to to look at that because it's very interesting as far as aging is concerned. It's always been, you know, there's that whole thing about uh, cockroaches are going to be the only creature on planet Earth that will survive pretty much anything, but uh, it's likely to be the tardigrades. It is likely to be the tardigrades. You can find them, you know, top of Everest, you can find them down. Um, they've been found a couple of kilometres underwater. Normally they live in moss and lichen, if you were to take some of that, um, put it in some water and then have a look under a microscope or even a dissecting microscope, you'd be able to see these beautiful little creatures. But yeah, they've been known to withstand all sorts of things, even, you know, radiation. Imagine Lots being of one radiation. of the scientists working on them. Yeah. Kind of going, let's see what we can chuck at them next. Yeah. And they'll, and knowing that they'll probably survive it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, one other cool paper that I'd like to mention just in the last closing minutes before we hand over to the doctors um, is a group in China that have been working on cave fish. Um, so these are fish that live, have lived for thousands of years, millions of years, have evolved in these um, very, very dark caves. Um, and they wondered how they got around because a lot of these fish are either blind or have no eyes at all. Um, and what they do is that they look at the fish and that they have these neuromasts. They have these cells which are on the side of them and they find that these cells, well, these neuromasts, these structures, um, they find them more on one side of the fish. And so the fish then sticks to the wall of the cave, just a bit like we might be getting around the house using our hands to walk down the corridor so oh, we can feel our it. way. So they are feeling their way around the cave. So cool. Yeah. Dr. Beach, so sorry. I would have loved to have talked more. Um, a message from someone saying thank you for the interview with the Kiwi Seaweed Chap. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for listening and for letting us know about that as well. Uh, yeah, and many thanks to Dr. Nigel Bradley, also to Ben Francis Shelley, and thank you, Dr. Beach. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Rachel, very much. And thank you to David, who will have this show up as a podcast in the next few days. On next week's program, we're going to be talking about Front Beach, Back Beach. It's an amazing uh, celebration of art on the Mornington Peninsula. Um, Also, Kevin Green from Afloat Magazine and Cabin Boy will be in. Have a wonderful Sunday, and uh, we will catch you next week for more Radio Marinara. Bye for now. (laughs) That's right. Triple R. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. 
Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.